The House January 6th committee hears from state elections officials who say they were pressured by the Trump White House to overturn voting results. It's Tuesday, June 21st, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up, what the committee heard today with another round of testimony coming on Thursday. I said, look, you are asking me to do something that is counter to my oath when I swore to the Constitution to uphold it. Also this hour, two brothers from outside the Ukrainian city of Kharkiv worked to help collect the bodies of Russian soldiers left behind when troops retreated from the area. And the new poll showing most adults in the U.S. have been affected by extreme weather in the past five years. It's 401 First, this news. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Today's House Select Committee hearing on the January 6th riot last year at the U.S. Capitol focused on efforts by then-President Donald Trump to alter state election results. NPR's Lexi Chappittle reports officials from Georgia outlined the pressure they faced to overturn or change vote counts. Georgia was a key swing state that decided the 2020 election for Joe Biden. It also became a prime target for conspiracy theories that the election there was stolen. Gabriel Sterling, chief operating officer at the Georgia Secretary of State's office, spoke out against these theories in the days after the election. But then President Trump and his allies continued to spread false claims. It was kind of like a shovel trying to empty the ocean. And yes, it was frustrating. I even have you know, family members who I had to argue with about some of these things. Sterling also told lawmakers that threats against election workers pushed him to publicly warn that Trump's words could lead to violence. Lexi Chapitol, NPR News, the Capitol. A top Texas public safety official testifies today that law enforcement could have stopped last month's deadly Uvalde school shooting in minutes. 19 children and two teachers were killed. Houston Public Media's Paul Benedetto reports first responders waited more than an hour to confront the teenage gunman. Local law enforcement in Uvalde has been under scrutiny in the weeks since the massacre at Robb Elementary. Steve McGraw is director of the Texas Department of Public Safety. He told a special state Senate committee the police response to the shooting was a, quote, abject failure. The officers had weapons. The children had none. The officers had body armor. The children had none. The officers had training. The subject had none. McGraw criticized the chief at the scene, Pete Arredondo, for waiting an hour and 14 minutes to engage with the shooter. The committee will weigh options for the next legislative session after testimony is finished this week. For NPR News, I'm Paul Benedetto in Houston. The series of Supreme Court rulings announced today on guns. Conservative and liberal justices joined in a 7-2 decision to limit the reach of a federal statute that mandates tougher penalties for crimes involving a gun. And the court ruled 6-3 along ideological lines that religious schools should have access to the same taxpayer funds secular private schools get. The Supreme Court has also rejected Bayer's appeal to end thousands of lawsuits that claim Roundup weed killer causes cancer. The justices left in place a $25 million judgment against Bayer. The Ukrainian fight against Russia's invasion hits especially close to home today. Here's Pentagon spokesman John Kirby. The State Department uh, has confirmed uh, that uh, another American citizen has been killed uh, in the fighting in Ukraine. A spokesperson for the Russian government says the Kremlin will not rule out the death penalty for two Americans captured in Ukraine 
The Russians are calling the detainees mercenaries. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Parents and caregivers in the state are deciding which COVID vaccine is best for their child. Shots began going into arms today after the CDC gave the okay to the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines for kids ages 5 and under over the weekend. Dr. Benjamin Linus is an infectious disease specialist at Boston Medical Center. He tells WBUR's Radio Boston both vaccines are equally effective, but that there are some trade-offs. The Pfizer vaccine, he says, requires three doses. Moderna requires two. And he says the Moderna shot typically brings on more side effects. I don't think anyone will regret getting one vaccine versus the other once their child is vaccinated. I really think it's about those trade-offs in sort of ease of access and the experience of getting the vaccine. Linus calls vaccines for the youngest kids one of the most crucial moments in the pandemic. New research from Harvard finds the majority of adults in the U.S. have experienced extreme weather in the past five years. The Harvard NPR poll found those experiences are driving people's opinions on climate change and proposals for climate policy. WBUR's Hannah Shinatri has more. Wildfires, floods, extreme heat, and hurricanes. People who have experienced these events are more likely to see climate change as a crisis than those who haven't. And among those who've experienced extreme weather, nearly one in four say they face serious health problems as a result. Harvard survey co-director Robert Blunden says those affected largely want action to protect against climate change, and they want the government to pay for it. Requiring cars in the future to get better gas mileage, uh, requiring plants to reduce their carbon emissions was widely supported. Blunden says respondents are less supportive of policies that would have them pay more out of pocket. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Hannah Schnatry. Boston has named the finalist who could become the next superintendent of public schools. Mary Skipper's been superintendent of Somerville Public Schools for the past seven years. Before that, she worked for nearly two decades in various roles for Boston Public Schools. The other finalist is Tommy Welch, who currently serves as an assistant school superintendent in Boston. Final public interviews are set for later this week. The chosen candidate will replace Brenda Caselius, who's stepping down after three years on the job. In the forecast, it'll be increasing clouds tonight, most dropping to the upper 50s. A mix of sun and clouds tomorrow with a slight chance of afternoon showers. Highs in the low 70s and Thursday, partly sunny, chance of showers. Highs in the mid-70s. Right now, 70 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users. Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. Here's one account of what Rudy Giuliani said as he worked to overturn the results of the 2020 election. We've got lots of theories, we just don't have the evidence. Rudy Giuliani, the words of Rudy Giuliani, according to Arizona House Speaker Rusty Bowers, a Republican, he was recalling a conversation he had with Giuliani, Donald Trump's lawyer. Now, Bowers was one of several officials from key swing states testifying today before the House January 6th committee. They recounted pressure from Trump to overturn President Biden's victory, and they recounted the many ways their lives were upended as they tried to protect democracy. NPR congressional correspondent 
Bank. Claudia Grisales joins me from Capitol Hill. Hey, Claudia. Hi, Mary Louise. All right, let's start with Rusty Bauer. She testified for about an hour. He gave all kinds of detail about how Trump and Giuliani personally pressured him. What else did we learn? Right. This was pretty powerful testimony from Bauer's about the extent of the pressure and the threats he and his family faced from Trump and his allies. He said protesters were showing up to where he lived, threatening him and his family, blasting music in their neighborhood. And at one point, a man recently approached his neighbor. And he had a pistol and was threatening my neighbor, not with the pistol, but just vocally. When I saw the gun, I knew I had to get close. And this was troubling for his family, his wife, who he called valiant, and a daughter who was gravely ill. Bowers had said Trump asked him to hold a hearing to investigate allegations of fraud in Arizona, but he said the evidence didn't merit a hearing. He said he told Trump and Giuliani that he would not break his oath. And there were many others who pressured Bowers, including lawyer John Eastman and Arizona GOP Congressman Andy Biggs. You know, I'm listening to this account of all the pressure coming from so many directions. It seems like that was a, a central theme today. Am I right here? That the, the, right. How democracy is upheld by big institutions, but also by individuals like, like, like Bowers. Exactly. For example, Chairman Benny Thompson warned these kind of threats continue today. He was saying two weeks ago, a county commissioner in New Mexico refused to certify results in a primary election race using unsupported claims. And then returning to Bowers, Bowers called arguments by Trump and Giuliani and other allies trying to get Arizona to use fake electors as, quote, a tragic parody. Bowers said that they choose to follow the will of the people. That's what he chose to do. He also said Giuliani pressured him to call the Arizona legislature back into session, a unilateral move Bowers said he can't do and to recall electors that were going to be for President Biden. So Bowers was emotional when he said, quote, it is a tenant of my faith that the Constitution is divinely inspired, and he would not do it. Hmm. Um, We also heard today from high-profile Trump allies who were part of this pressure campaign and this whole fake electors scheme. Who were they? Right. We heard about two members of Congress who were witnesses or who witnesses said and evidence showed had ties to this pressure campaign. For example, Bauer said he got a call the morning of January 6th from Arizona GOP Congressman Andy Biggs, who was pressuring him to sign on to a letter to decertify these electors for Biden. Biggs is also facing a January 6th subpoena in refusing to cooperate. And then we also saw text messages from an aide to Wisconsin GOP Senator Ron Johnson, who told one of Pence's aides that Johnson could give then-Vice President Mike Pence a slate of fake electors for his state and Michigan on January 6th. But we should note a Johnson aide said today the senator was not personally involved in this effort. Um, We also heard from several Georgia witnesses about the threats they faced. What did they say? Right. This was really striking testimony here from Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and his deputy Gabe Sterling. They were expanding on the pressure and threats they faced from their state, from Trump and his allies. Another witness from the state, this is Shea Moss. Uh, This is a Fulton County election worker at the time, recounted how she and her mother had to go into hiding because of the threats they face from the former president and his allies. For example, on a call, Trump attacked Shea Moss and her mother 18 times. And Giuliani also spread outrageous false rumors connecting her to drug use. 
a lot of threats, um, wishing death upon me, telling me that you know I'm I'll be in jail with my mother, and saying things like, "Be glad it's 2020 and not 1920." And so this leads into testimony we will hear from other witnesses in the mm-hmm. coming days about this wide-ranging investigation into Trump's pressure campaign in January 6th. And PR's Claudia Grisales there on Capitol Hill. Thanks, Claudia. Thank you much. Ukraine's military pushed Russian forces back weeks ago from Ukraine's second-largest city, Kharkiv. Since then, Ukraine has been collecting the bodies of Russians left behind. NPR's Ryan Lucas explains why two brothers from a village outside Kharkiv are among those unburying Russia's dead. Yurosuro Kochahin leads us down a small path through fields planted with neat rows of potatoes and green onions. He stops in front of his vegetable garden, a fallow patch of dark soil bordered by a cherry tree and a blown-out house. He says there was a crater here, a big one. There's only a dip in the ground now, but it was here that he found the first ones. The dogs were circling around, and there was a burnt-out stump sticking out of the ground. I thought maybe it was a cherry tree, but the cherry tree wasn't there. I know my garden. And I'm wondering what it could be, and then I pull on it, and there was a hand. It was the body of a Russian soldier killed in the fighting that destroyed much of this village of Malorohan. Yura says there were five Russians in all buried in the crater, one on top of the other. This was back in April. He and his brother, Volva, dug them up and called the Ukrainian military, who sent people out to collect the bodies. We helped them out, and that's how we started working together. By this, he means his and his brother's work as volunteer grave diggers. They exhumed the bodies of Russians who died in the failed attack on the nearby city of Kharkiv. And so far, they say, they've exhumed around 20 Russians in all. Yura is not a large man. His hair is but short, his skin burnt by the sun, his voice raspy from the cigarettes he smokes on repeat. In peacetime, he looked after the local soccer field, did random jobs, and sometimes helped bury locals at the village cemetery. And so after the Russian army swept into Malorohan in the first days of the war, he says he started helping bury some of the conflict's early victims. After the war started, I was making arrangements with the Russians so I could bury civilians that had been killed. The Russians had set up firing positions by the village graveyard, he says, so many of the civilians who died had to be buried in gardens. Since the Russian withdrawal, he's been exhuming the villagers, many of them people he knew, and reburying them in the cemetery. And for him, there's a difference between burying his fellow villagers and the Russians, who were at least indirectly responsible for their deaths. I feel different. I have tears in my eyes when I know the person, know them personally. But when it's just a body, it's just a body. Honestly, I don't care. Even so, he says he knows that somewhere, someone is suffering over the loss of each and every dead Russian he finds as well. The sad thing is even the Russian guys have parents, someone waiting for them, young guys. And it's sad to realize that. This work, of course, is not glamorous. The smell of death can follow the brothers home. When Yura first started, the village didn't have any water or power, so he couldn't even wash his clothes at the end of the day. My wife doesn't understand how I keep doing this job. Every time I come home, she asks, how can you do it? And she tells me to go wash, go clean yourself. Neither brother much likes this job, but it is a necessary one. 
And because of the heavy fighting that raged around Kharkiv, there's plenty of work to be done. Including a few days later when we meet Yura and his brother in Pyatahatki, a suburb on the northern edge of Kharkiv. Because here, in a little ditch just off a road littered with the charred hulks of burnt-out vehicles, a Russian soldier lies buried in a shallow grave. So you can see a little bit of clothes poking out there. It's like they just buried him and they put a little bit of dirt over the body. But yeah, you can definitely see some bits of uniform sticking out. A Ukrainian soldier slowly runs a metal detector over the ground to make sure there aren't any mines or explosives. He declares it safe to work and Yura and Volva start digging. Eventually, they pull the corpse out, place it into a white body bag, and zip it shut. Yura and Volva take turns pouring water onto each other's hands to clean up. Then they light cigarettes and wait for a military team to come collect the body. It will be taken to a morgue where forensic experts will search it for papers, tattoos, emblems, anything that could help identify the individual or his unit. Then the body will be placed in cold storage, and eventually exchanged with Russia for Ukraine's own war dead. And it's that exchange that makes this all worthwhile for the brothers. They are helping bring Ukrainians home for a proper burial. Yura and Volva are both in their late 50s. They can't run around with a gun anymore, Volva says. So this is their way to contribute. Someone is good at something, we are good at this, so we have to do this. Eventually, a battered white van pulls up. The brothers heave the body bag into the back and shut the door. They are now done for the day, but they know that more work still lies in the fields and forests around them. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Kharkiv, Ukraine. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org. Coming up on All Things Considered, the new survey that finds most adults in the U.S. have been affected by extreme weather in the past five years. In business news, Massachusetts gas prices are down five cents this week, though they remain near record highs. AAA Northeast reports the average for a gallon of regular is now $4.99. That's three cents higher than the national average. On Wall Street, stocks posted solid gains with the Dow up 641 points today at 30,530. NASDAQ was up 270 points and the S&P 500 gained 89 points. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Native Plant Trust's Garden in the Woods in Framingham, showcasing the beauty of New England's native plants and a dramatic natural landscape. Information at nativeplanttrust.org. And Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig. Designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. Remember, what's better than WBUR uninterrupted and still meeting our fundraising goals? 
Getting your monthly gift tripled for a year, but only when you give now at WBUR.org. In the forecast, it'll be partly cloudy tonight with lows down in the upper 50s. Partly cloudy tomorrow, slight chance of a shower, highs in the low 70s. Right now, 72 degrees in Boston at 420. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Data Aiku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Climate change is making extreme weather more common in the U.S. That means serious financial problems for millions of people, according to a new survey. Rebecca Hersher from NPR's climate team explains. The survey was conducted by NPR, Harvard University, and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And it asked people all over the U.S. about their experiences with heat waves and hurricanes, floods, wildfires, and other extreme weather. And one of those people was Jennifer Harris. She's a nurse who lives in Hampton, Virginia, and answers phone calls from unknown reporters. I'm a very trusting person, Rebecca. When I called her up, Harris told me that extreme weather has cost her family a lot of money. Their town is on the coast, which means there are hurricanes and also thunderstorms, nor'easters, and floods. We've had um, roof damage. We've had siding damage. We have a shed out back where we've had siding damage done that. We've At our fence, we've replaced it twice. Now, one thing the survey found across the country is that when a storm causes damage like that, most people end up paying for a big chunk of the repairs themselves. The survey found that most people do not get help from the federal government, and insurance doesn't cover most of the repair costs. And that can happen even if you think you have good home or rental insurance, like when a storm damaged the Harris's house. So basically, we assumed our home insurance would cover everything, but we had a What was it, babe? A a deductible? Basically, their insurance policy required them to pay 10% of their home's value out of pocket before the insurance company would start paying. And they ended up having to ask their relatives for help to pay for the repairs. We budget. And um, I don't want to make it seem like we're poor, but honestly, we do live paycheck to paycheck. And it's hard to save up when something like that happens. Harris said it took at least five years for the family to recover financially. The new survey suggests things like this are happening to millions of people. Caroline Ratcliffe is an economist at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. People can get hit from multiple directions. In 2020, before she worked at the Bureau, Ratcliffe co-authored a study that found natural disasters can cause lower credit scores, more debt, and more mortgage delinquency. And that people who live in less wealthy neighborhoods get hit harder. Disasters can have the effect of widening existing inequalities. And it's going to make create a bigger spread, basically between the haves and the have-nots. The new survey backs that up. Households that make less than $50,000 a year suffered weather-related financial problems at more than four times the rate of those who make more money. All of which suggests that, ideally, people would be more prepared for extreme weather to help prevent expensive damage. 
Jennifer Harris says she would love to feel more prepared for hurricane season, which just started this month. It is expensive being hurricane ready. That's the only thing. The list of expenses goes on and on. Special flood insurance, sandbags to keep the water out of the house. They have to be ready to evacuate if there's a storm, which means getting a hotel room or buying gas to drive hours to stay with relatives. They have a generator in case the power goes out and an emergency kit. But Harris says it's so full of useful stuff that it's always getting cannibalized for everyday needs. There's water bottles there. There's batteries. As soon as Christmas hits, I always forget to buy batteries. We dip into that kit and grab the batteries. Forecasters say this summer there will be more severe hurricanes than usual, as well as longer heat waves, worse wildfires, and heavier rain, in part because of global warming. And that means families like the Harrises are crossing their fingers, hoping to be spared. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Some monkeys have astounding vocal abilities. Others, not so much. And now a team of scientists thinks it knows why. NPR's John Hamilton reports that their explanation offers some clues about the origins of human speech. This is a tale of two kinds of monkeys. The first is the macaque. It's larger and lives in Asia and North Africa. Christina Sirkovich at the University of Pittsburgh says when it comes to vocalizing, macaques are kind of limited. They don't seem to have a lot of control over their vocalizations. They don't change the pitch. They don't change the internal timing. A lot of times their calls don't have syllables. The second monkey is the marmoset. It's smaller and lives primarily in South America. Sirkovich says the vocal skills of marmosets are remarkable. These guys have wonderful control over their vocalizations. They'll change the pitch, get louder because somebody's far away. They'll change the timing so that if you keep artificially cutting them off, they'll wait for the noise to go away so they can get their message heard. Both species have the same basic vocal tract. So the team figured the difference must be in how their brains control the vocal muscles. Sirkovich says the team decided to focus on one particular muscle in the larynx. This tiny little muscle, especially in the marmosets because they're very small, This muscle, when it contracts, it increases tension on the vocal cords so that the pitch goes up. The team designed an experiment to identify the brain areas that control this tiny muscle. Peter Strick, a neurobiologist, says the experiment used a substance that follows the nerve pathways from muscle tissue to the brain. And so we said, look, if we inject the same muscle, we might be able to see what's changed in the marmoset that allows it to vocalize. The experiment worked, and the results are published in the journal PNAS. The team found differences in two areas of the brain. One area seems to help shape a particular sound. The other appears to control the timing and sequence of sounds. Strick says in both of these areas, the South American marmosets had many more brain cells sending signals to the tiny muscle in the larynx. We believe that these two areas are really key in enabling marmoset complex vocalization. These areas are separate from what's known as the primary motor cortex, which is involved in planning and executing all kinds of muscle movement. But Strick says the areas work together with the primary motor cortex to help a monkey vocalize. In a sense, 
It has multiple separate computers running at the same time to deal with that complex task. Strick says that's also true in people who devote a lot of brain power to speech. Speech is remarkably complex. You have to control breathing appropriately. You have to control your lips and your tongue and, and produce sound. And you have to have very fine control of muscles in the larynx. Dr. Eddie Chang of the University of California, San Francisco, has spent years mapping the brain areas involved in human speech. What's been a missing piece of the puzzle in all of this is whether or not the part of the brain that controls the larynx is similar in other species, including some of our closest relatives, monkeys. Chang says now it looks like that puzzle piece has been found. And he says the discovery of brain areas that give marmosets a vocal advantage over macaques could explain how humans took the next evolutionary step. This new paper suggests that it's the elaboration of these parts of the brain that might have evolved for humans to speak and have language. A skill that appeared at least 50,000 years ago. John Hamilton, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, the growing effort to help prison inmates earn bachelor's degrees while they serve their sentence. Also remember, coming to City Space on Friday, Masari Studios presents Ritual System, an immersive art experience with synced music, light, and video. Free tickets at WBUR.org events. Forecast says increasing clouds tonight, lows in the upper 50s. Right now, 72 degrees in Boston at 429. Reverend Willie Bodrick II is the head pastor at 12th Baptist Church in Roxbury. And we had been talking about leading with the tradition of the black church behind him. And then I asked him, okay, but what about where you buck the traditions? Bringing a vaccine clinic to 12th Baptist Church, despite much well-understood skepticism and concern in his parish community, which is a predominantly black parish community, about trusting the healthcare system. We did a fireside chat. Uh, you know, I don't have a beautiful studio, but I have a beautiful sanctuary where we brought in physician to kind of answer live all the questions. And we stayed there as long as we needed to, to correct any misinformation, to deal with the distrust, and to acknowledge the pain. Understanding people's trepidations strengthens us across our communities. My name is Tiziana Deering. I'm the host of Radio Boston. Give monthly at WBUR.org, and thank you. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. All Americans can now get a COVID-19 shot after the authorization of vaccines for kids under age 5 over the weekend. The CDC approved the childlike vaccines for 17 million children, six months and older. CDC Director Rochelle Walensky says state health officials still have their work cut out to get the shots from Moderna and Pfizer into the arms of kids. The court said if a state uses... What we know is that confidence is going to grow over time. We saw that with adult vaccination when first rolled out. About 35% of people were interested, but we now have nearly 90% of people who've had one dose. So we have work to do with our trusted messengers, pediatricians, um, healthcare providers, pharmacists across this country, and that hard work starts right now. The Biden administration expects the pace of shots for the youngest kids to be slower than older ones, as parents are more likely to rely on their children's pediatrician to administer the shots. 
A new U.S. Supreme Court ruling that Maine's tuition assistance program must cover religious schools stands to affect institutions in more than half of all U.S. states. NPR's Barbara Sprunt tells us that ruling was 6-3 along ideological lines. Democrat Elaine Luria narrowed... I think sometimes moments require you to stand up and... In other news, the House uh, January 6th committee opened uh, another hearing today, a uh, hearing from state and local officials who uh, fended off Donald Trump's pressure to overturn the 2020 election. We'll have more on that as the news progresses throughout the day. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Massachusetts is getting back some of the money it spent on COVID supplies in the early days of the pandemic. The Federal Emergency Management Agency is reimbursing the state a little more than $50 million. Those funds will cover the cost of medical equipment like hand sanitizer, masks, and surgical gloves. In all, FEMA says it's helped the state recoup more than a billion dollars in pandemic-related costs. Massachusetts home prices are at a new record high. The median price of a single-family home in the state is almost $618,000, a more than 12% increase compared to the same time last year. Don Ruffini, president of the Massachusetts Realtors Association, believes prices will continue to rise because of a shortage of homes for sale. The rate of the increase will slow over time, but I don't see it scaling back. We don't have enough supply for the demand that we have. Our population in Massachusetts has grown 17% over the last few years. We have a lot of new household formations. Millennials are buying. Ruffini says the hike in prices and mortgage rates are pushing buyers looking for entry-level housing out of the market. She says some people originally looking in Massachusetts are expanding their search area into Rhode Island, Vermont, and New Hampshire. Authorities on Martha's Vineyard are testing hundreds of dead birds for avian flu. Officials in Tisbury say hundreds of dead cormorants have washed ashore throughout the island. Tisbury Animal Control says it believe, believes a highly contagious avian flu strain may be the culprit. The CDC says the illness poses little risk to people, but town officials, though, are warning beachgoers not to touch the birds and to keep dogs on a leash. It's 434. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by AVFX, offering sophisticated event services, in person, online, or some combination of the two, bringing them to life at avfx.com events. And the MassArt Art Museum, designing motherhood, explores the arc of human reproduction through art and design. Learn more at maam.massart.edu. In the forecast, it'll be partly cloudy overnight tonight, lows in the upper 50s. Partly cloudy tomorrow, slight chance of a shower, highs in the low 70s. Right now, 72 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI.
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. On the first day of his senior year last fall, Kenny Butler woke up at 4 a.m. He took a bike ride through the campus of Pitzer College, past the dining hall, the pool, the lecture hall where his first college class on campus would be held several hours later. Ready or not, here I come. He posted a video on Facebook captioned, first day of the fall semester up and ready. Butler was recently released from prison. Now that he's out, he bikes nearly every morning. It's part of his internal clock left over from his 15 years inside. And it was inside a medium facility prison in Norco, California, where he and seven other students started their bachelor's degrees. I've just been pushing, taking six and seven classes a semester and changed my whole mind frame about life in general. A lot of guys see me walking around, know me from my past life. Now they see me with all these books all the time. I'm like a walking dictionary around here. Getting a degree behind bars is a really rare opportunity. But that is about to change. Starting next year, the federal government will open up Pell Grants to people in prison. Hundreds of thousands of people may get the opportunity that Kenny got, if Kenny Butler and others like him succeed. Their stories could influence the future of college in prison and the value of a degree. NPR's Alyssa Nadworny brings us Kenny's extraordinary story. The story of how this 48-year-old got from prison to this bike ride through campus actually starts with another bicycle. My first time going to juvenile hall, I was maybe 11 years old. A bike. I had taken a bike. I had rode off on someone's bike. And they didn't catch me with the bike. Someone told on me. And then after that, once I got on the radar, it was, you know, any little thing happened. Butler grew up in public housing in the Watts neighborhood of L.A., about an hour and a world away from Pitzer's lush campus in Claremont. I grew up in a gang culture. My family uh, was part of the group that started the Crips. So I was raised in that environment. Being in and out of the criminal justice system through his teens meant school was never a focus. You know, one semester I just missed totally. He spent his 20s selling drugs and rising to become a leader in the Crips. A lot of what pushed me into that underworld was, you know, income, trying to generate income. It wasn't until a felony charge at age 32 for a crime he says he didn't do but took a plea deal for, landed him 15 years, that he finally turned to books. I started reading, just, you know, break up that time. You know, had to have something to do. But the books in the prison library were often hard to digest. So many words were unknown to Kenny. And then he found a book that opened up his world. I was in the cell with a guy, and he was going to throw the book away. Yeah, he was saying, he's like, man, you want this? I don't want this book. And I looked at it, man, that's a dictionary. I, mean, I kept it, and I've been having it ever since. The two-inch thick Webster's Dictionary became Kenny's companion over the next 12 years, helping him understand himself and the world. Yeah, all highlighted, and yeah, this is, this is my research kit. This is Google right here. The cover fell off from overuse, so he had to fashion a new one. You see, it's all dog-eared, and um, there may be coffee or something on there. I don't, yeah. Here it is, Castile, and it has a map. The beloved dictionary, the frequent visits to the prison library, perhaps that's where Kenny's intellectual journey may have ended. But instead, an incredible and rare opportunity set him off on a different path. Pitzer College became one of the few colleges in the country to offer college classes for a bachelor's degree in prison. 
and Kenny was one of the men chosen. Hi guys, how are y'all? Hi everyone, welcome, welcome. I see some smiling, happy faces, which you don't always see on Zoom calls. So, uh, that's where that's producer good. Lauren Magaki and I first met Kenny um, Butler in the fall of 2020 over Zoom at the California Rehabilitation Center, a medium security prison in Norco, California. I'm going to give you all a pop quiz now. So Students on the outside on Pitzer's campus were in the classes too. It's called an inside out program. How did the mythology frame, you know, the institution of slavery? Kenny? Yeah, the glamorizing of the, of the plantation. That, um, that there are very few college programs like this in prison, because so, for the last quarter century, there's been a ban on using federal money to pay for it. Congress recently lifted that ban, which will give hundreds of thousands of people like Kenny the opportunity for higher education. Pick out understanding patriarchy. I'm going to share. Inside, Kenny took classes in feminism for men, African American poetry. He learned how his own experience in prison had applications for the real world. The plan was to get a degree in organizational studies from inside prison. But last spring, a surprising thing happened. Kenny Butler got an early release. All those classes inside had shortened his sentence. On an early February morning, he shed his blue prison uniform and boarded a bus. As it drove away, Kenny leaned against the window, watching the prison complex disappear, with its guard towers receding. So you were watching those towers? I'm looking back at the tower, all those towers around us. I said, it's been most of my life, that's what I've been staring at. Like That was like the proverbial knee on my neck, being closed in the gates. And I was thinking this would be the last time I see one of these. On the bus with him, he packed his companions from those years inside, a handful of books and his beloved dictionary. I have a, a stack of books. I'm going to send you guys some pictures of my little, the beginning of my library. Because Kenny had the opportunity to enroll in the degree program inside prison. Come on in, come on in. Pitzer set him up to finish his degree on the outside. Class is on the board, political studies class, post 20. American politics and black and white. The college secured tuition from an anonymous donor and housing on campus. Kenny, a tall man in his late 40s, would stroll through campus in his signature Pitzer hoodie. Let's do lunch sometime soon, yeah? Okay. I've been talking. It felt good to be a student here, but Kenny also stood out and he felt it. A lot of times we walk around here, we don't get acknowledged by certain people. Sometimes other students would cross the street to avoid Kenny. And in the first couple of months, it happened in class, too. When they broke off the groups, only one person came to my table. It caught him off guard. He thought a liberal arts campus would be different. We're supposed to be a melting pot and everybody's trying to be progressive and coming together, but they were like stepchildren in the family. No one wants to be around us. <laughs> yeah. Plus, there were other everyday challenges in the transition from living in a prison to living on the outside. There was a lot of distraction. I, I fell behind on my summer classes. I have I had to get an extension on my microeconomics, so I couldn't actually concentrate. Inside, he could just focus on class. Outside, there was the internet, social media, where Kenny posts almost constantly with the hashtag ButlerStrong. And in the background, his family and friends, and a global pandemic. I had actually like seven deaths in my family since leaving. Yeah, I lost my son's mother, I lost the auntie, and my uncle and my grandmother recently. And then my little brother just got arrested the other day. Yeah, but it's, it's been a roller coaster, but all I can do is take it and strive, you know. 
What is school in that world? Where does school fit for you in that world? School is priority. Yeah, school is priority with me. My family understands that. And school was a priority. He got great grades. His professors looked to him as a leader. And getting that bachelor's degree, it would be a major accomplishment on its own. But Kenny was focused on what came next, a career where he'd be able to help people in prison. One issue, though? I have no actual work history at all. Being a leader in a gang, being a leader inside prison, it's hard to put that on a resume. I can't place kitchen worker on there. And, you know, so I'm trying to build up the resume. To work around this predicament, Kenny focused on fellowships. Designed for recent college grads, they put more value on personal story and academic experience. He applied to several, including a research Fulbright in Uganda, studying the prison system there, and an Napier Fellowship, which awards $20,000 towards a project supporting social change. Kenny Butler won both of them. You know, I actually cried, and I had to pull over. Yeah, because I was overwhelmed with joy. In addition to the fellowships, Kenny's been accepted to graduate school at Cal Poly for a master's program in public administration. You know, when it rains, it pours. You know, you work hard to get to a certain point. And when you get acknowledged in that way, now you have to work harder to make people know that they picked the right person. When he thinks about the odds of his life, to go to college, to graduate, to win a Fulbright, it's pretty overwhelming. His whole life, the odds were always stacked against him. Kenny Butler. The idea that education paved the way for his future and will for the incarcerated students who follow in his footsteps, that brings him purpose. Wow, Alyssa, this is an amazing story. So as we said at the beginning, starting next year, there could be a whole lot more people like Kenny who can access college classes in prison, which seems like a no-brainer, right? Like, why couldn't this happen before? Yeah. You know, for the last quarter century, people in prison have been banned from using federal money to pay for college. It's part of the 1994 crime bill, which stripped people who are in prison from using Pell Grants. That's free money. Essentially, overnight, most higher ed programs in prison disappeared because they didn't have the federal money to support it. Ruth Delaney is with the Vera Institute, and she studies this. Here's what she had to say. After that bill passed, uh, we went from having upwards of 300 college programs that shrunk down to about 12 in the, the decade that followed. And so those handful of programs that remained, they were largely funded by private money, like Pitzer's program. Mm. Well, why is all of this changing at this moment, like right now? Well, a lot of this stems from a change made under the Obama administration. It was a pilot program called Second Chance Pell, and it opened it up to about 75 colleges. In the last four years, it's reached about 30,000 people in prison. So that was the first step. Research shows that this impacts recidivism, which impacts the bottom line. And so people on both sides of the aisle pushed to have this ban lifted. Okay. And the Trump administration signed the bill that's putting this in place. So it's really a bipartisan issue. And how exactly will this legislation work? So most prison population is low income, so they're going to be able to access Pell Grants. The Pell Grant covers about $7,000 in tuition. Basically, colleges are going to stand up programs so that they can tap into this federal money. And opening up Pell Grants to people in prison is a huge step. But it's worth noting that money isn't everything. There's going to be a lot of challenges going forward. Kenny, he's exceptional. 
but a bachelor's degree doesn't erase or make up for a criminal record, and so a lot of these folks have a long road ahead of them. Yeah. That is NPR's Alyssa Nadwerny. Thank you so much, Alyssa. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, why more than 36,000 Californians who say their employers cheated them out of pay could be waiting a long time for the state to act. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston New Works Festival, featuring new original plays June 23rd to 26th, Calderwood Pavilion and Boston Center for the Arts, bostontheaterscene.org. Building Restoration Services, hiring architects, engineers, and estimators to solve complex building envelope problems. BuildingRestorationServices.com And William James College, formal education and training to become an executive coach. Earn your graduate certificate in eight months. Apply now for fall, williamjames.edu. 72 degrees now in Boston. Remember, your monthly gift gets tripled for one year, and you keep WBUR uninterrupted when you give right now at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include the Arlington Chamber and Mass Office of Travel and Tourism. Enjoy Arlington's cultural district with shopping, dining, theaters, and more. Details at visitarlingtonma.org. Goddard House in Brookline, an innovative senior community for those seeking meaning, growth, and purpose in each and every day. Goddardhouse.org. And Welch and Forbes, over 180 years of experience providing customized private wealth management for individuals and families. WelchForbes.com. The West wants Ukraine to fight on. Ukraine must win this war. But should we be pushing for peace? I don't see that backing Ukraine to complete victory makes sense either practically or morally. I'm Kimberly Atkins-Store. That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Every year, billions of dollars are stolen from people in the United States by their employers. It's called wage theft. California is trying to help recover some of these wages, but workers there often face long delays. From member station KQED, Farida Jabvala Romero reports. Sitting at a park in Oakland, Mirna Arana unfolds documents from the California Labor Commissioner's office. Her claim is for tens of thousands of dollars in unpaid wages. She says she cleaned offices during 12-hour days, six days a week. But the small janitorial company she worked for didn't pay her for half of that, or overtime. Arana plucked up the courage to complain with the state. It took more than three years before she got a hearing to resolve her case. In the years she waited, she says her family had to move several times. They couldn't afford the rent. Her former employer did not respond to requests for comment. State law says that hearings must be held within four months of a wage claim being filed. That's not happening. 
California workers waited more than two years on average. Daniel Yu, an assistant chief at the Labor Commissioner, acknowledges that delays are unacceptable. We want to make sure that the process works effectively and efficiently so the workers... When the pandemic started, the Labor Commissioner halted in-person hearings. Now they're trying to catch up, but they have a shortage of staff. The hiring of our hearing officers uh, remains a top priority. California has more than 35,000 pending wage claims. Nearly half have been languishing a year or longer without a resolution. Veronica Chavez is a workers' right attorney with Centro Legal de la Raza in Oakland. She says these delays hurt vulnerable workers. This almost encourages employers to continue exploiting. You know, the chances of there being repercussions seem to be very long, far down the line. Labor enforcement agencies across the country are struggling with backlogs and understaffing, says Janice Fine, a professor of labor studies at Rutgers University. It's a very problematic system as it as it exists right now because there are many things about it that are not as effective as they need to be. Back at the playground in Oakland, Mirna Arana tells her three-year-old son it's time to go home. She finally got her hearing. It seemed like good news when the labor commissioner ruled that her old boss owes her nearly $183,000 in back wages and penalties. But by then, the company had filed for bankruptcy, she says. She says her employer still owes her what she earned, but she doesn't know when or if she'll see any of that money. For NPR News, I'm Farida Javala Romero. Classical singer Karim Suleiman adores European music from the 16th and 17th centuries. But as a Lebanese-American artist, he's aware that much of that music demonizes and stereotypes Arabs and Muslims. So in a new state work, he reframes those stories through an Arab-American lens. NPR culture correspondent Anastasia Siukis has more. Unholy Wars is a singular piece. It brings together dance, theater, visual art, and of course music, both old and new, sung by three vocalists, including Karim Suleiman. We open with the Gloria Patri from Monteverdi's Vespers. It's this echoing of two tenors, icing both tenor lines in it. And it's so melismatic, it almost harkens to this call to prayer of Islam. It sounds like the echoing not just of a church, of two voices in a church, but it sounds like if you're in like a very popular souk, you hear a call to prayer and you hear all the noises of the city. Many of the artists who worked with Suleiman on this project also have roots in the Middle East, including composer Mary Kuyumjian, who wrote the new music that weaves in and out between the Baroque selections. Kuyumjian says she wants audiences to understand that even as a composer of today, her own musical reference points extend back millennia, much older than the music of Monteverdi and Handel in Unholy Wars, which only go back about three and four hundred years. Here is some music that has lived even longer, you know, for thousands of years. Middle Eastern folk has been a thing on our planet. (laughs) 
Unholy Wars premiered last month at Spoleto Festival USA in Charleston, South Carolina. Its general director, Mina Mark Hanna, says the piece braids together not just many eras, but many ways of seeing. What Kareem is doing is extremely intelligent because he is creating a longer narrative between all of these different works. It's like period music plus liquid movement plus graphic novel. On stage, the work is intimate and elemental. The props are simple, chairs, a rope, buckets of water, and soil to suggest borders. The animated projections made by visual artist Kivork Murad evoke Armenian manuscripts, Arabic calligraphy, and the architecture of his native Aleppo, Syria. The simplicity of the set works both logistically and aesthetically. For one thing, notes director Kevin Newbery, it makes future stagings cost-efficient. I like to say the $5 idea and the $5 million idea have to be the same idea. We could tell this story out on the street with the buckets, the dirt, the rope, and the water. Kivork Murad says those simple elements also evoke both the family histories of several of the participants in Unholy Wars and today's refugee crises. I want the setting to be anywhere, so almost like a troubadour or a refugee. We're carrying with us those images like a tent. We can just strike it anywhere we want. Through all these elements, Unholy Wars becomes a very current contemplation on intergenerational trauma, belief, and self-identity. The creative team hopes they'll soon be able to take their theatrical meditation to audiences across the U.S. Anastasia Tsilikas, NPR News. The high price of gas is hitting everyone who relies on automobiles, but some of the biggest burdens fall on owners of small businesses, like contractors, plumbers, carpet cleaners, who often need gas-guzzling vehicles to serve their customers. Listen for that story tomorrow on your radio, or you can try asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your station by name. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies. At fidelity.com wealth, investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from LifeLock by Norton, reminding consumers that sensitive info sent online can lead to identity theft. Learn more at lifelock.com NPR. And from the Lemelson Foundation. This is WBUR. Coming up next hour on All Things Considered, new details about the police response to the Uvalde shooting last month. In the forecast, it'll be partly cloudy tonight, lows in the upper 50s. Right now, 71 degrees in Boston.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Music Emporium, guitar sellers for more than 50 years, celebrating the enduring presence of music made on the front porch and center stage. More at themusicemporium.com. And Innuendo, with smartphone-controlled Hunter Douglas PowerView motorized shades in their window fashions gallery. Hunter Douglas at Innuendonatic and Innuendo.com. I'm education reporter Max Larkin, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The House January 6th committee hears from state elections officials who testified they were pressured by the Trump administration to overturn the 2020 election results. It's Tuesday, June 21st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Jack Lepiars, in for Lisa Mullins. Coming up, what the committee heard today with a look ahead to its next hearing on Thursday. Also this hour, how one man has played a major role in the Supreme Court's increasingly conservative tilt. He, more than any other single person outside of government, is responsible for the transformation of the Supreme Court. And the Biden administration moves to restrict the U.S. military's use of landmines, though activists say they want to see more action. It's 501 First, this hour's news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The January 6th committee opened its latest hearing today, focusing on state and local officials subjected to unrelenting pressure from then-President Donald Trump and his staff to invalidate the 2020 election, appoint fake electors, and ultimately overturn the election itself. Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and others testifying how Trump urged him to find 11,780 votes, the amount needed to prevent Joe Biden from winning in the state. I think sometimes moments require you to stand up and, and just take the shots when you're doing your job. And that's all we did. We just followed the law and we followed the Constitution. And at the end of the day, President Trump came up short. But I had to be faithful to the Constitution. And that's what I saw an oath to do. Raffenberger's deputy, Gabe Sterling, and Arizona State GOP leader Rusty Bowers were also key witnesses. Panel describing Trump's false claims of election fraud and its effects on local elections officials. Attorney General Merrick Garland is launching a war crimes accountability team following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports Garland made an unannounced visit to Ukraine to meet with legal counterparts. Merrick Garland says there is no hiding place for war criminals. He says the new war crimes accountability team will share expertise in forensics, evidence collection, and legal advice. Garland says the team will play a key role in ongoing investigations, including the killing and wounding of American journalists covering Russian aggression in Ukraine. The attorney general has selected Eli Rosenbaum to coordinate the effort inside the Justice Department and other parts of the government. Rosenbaum has spent 36 years at the DOJ, most of them identifying and deporting Nazi war criminals. 
Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. The Justice Department and Facebook owner Meta have reached a settlement over allegations the social network's housing ads engaged in discrimination. As NPR's Bobby Allen reports, the deal will force Facebook to change how its ad systems target people. A Justice Department investigation found that Facebook's ad practices allowed marketers to exclude people from housing opportunities based on race, gender, and zip code. But now Facebook is agreeing to revamp some of its ad targeting tools to deal with what authorities described as, quote, algorithmic discrimination. Facebook says its new technology will keep tabs on whether certain groups are being left out of seeing ads for things like housing, credit, and jobs. It's not the first time Facebook has faced accusations that its targeted ad systems can be discriminatory, but a spokesperson for the company says its new systems will expand opportunities for marginalized communities. Bobby Allen, NPR News. Sales of previously owned homes took a tumble last month, even as prices hit a new high water mark, topping $400,000. National Association of Realtors says existing home sales fell 3.4%. A strong day on Wall Street. The Dow was up 641 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. A search committee is identifying the two finalists who could become the next superintendent of Boston Public Schools. They are Mary Skipper, who leads the school system in Somerville, and Tommy Welch, who's currently an assistant superintendent in Boston. WBUR's Max Larkin reports. The district's outgoing leader, Brenda Caselius, came to Boston from Minnesota. Her predecessor, Tommy Chang, came from California. Search committee members say the community was loud and clear that Boston's next superintendent should be somebody who knows the city well. Mary Skipper lives in Dorchester and worked in various BPS roles over almost 18 years before she took over in Somerville in 2015. That's the same year Tommy Welch came from Los Angeles to join the district as an assistant assistant superintendent. Final public interviews are set to take place this Thursday and Friday. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. Meantime, the city's breaking ground on a new school building designed for the district's highest needs students. The $92 million project is going up at the site of the existing Carter School in the South End. It's expected to increase the number of classrooms, offer an early childhood program, and has new outdoor and indoor spaces for students. It's scheduled to open in time for the 2024-25 school year. New data show there are big wage differences between what men and women earn in Boston. Kim Borman, the executive director of the Boston Women's Workforce Council, says the biggest pay inequity gap is between white men and women of color. White women, Asian women, indigenous women were at 70 cents on a dollar, this 30 cent gap. When you looked at black and African-American women, they were at 49 cents on the dollar, 51 cent gap. Latino women were at 55 cents. The salary information was collected last year and submitted anonymously by area businesses. Borman says while more needs to be done to close the gaps, her group recognized three local businesses, Vertex, Masco and C-Space, for making their salaries more equitable. In sports, Red Sox will host the Detroit Tigers at Fenway tonight. Rich Hill getting the start at 7.10 p.m. Forecast says increasing clouds tonight, lows in the upper 50s. A mix of sun and clouds tomorrow with a slight chance of afternoon showers, highs in the low 70s. Right now, 72 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Aspiration. Each swipe of its debit card provides funds to plant trees, helping customers reduce their carbon footprint. 75 million new trees have been funded. Aspiration Financial, LLC. Aspiration.com.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. It was May 2nd when the American public got a glimpse of how the Supreme Court could rule on a very consequential case. Now, according to a breaking new report from Politico, the U.S. Supreme Court has, in fact, voted to overturn Roe versus Wade. The Supreme Court has voted to overturn abortion rights. The opinion on abortion drove people to the steps of the Supreme Court in outrage and joy. Whether or not the Supreme Court actually does overturn Roe v. Wade, this moment the country finds itself in, staring quite possibly at the last remaining days of a constitutional right to abortion, this is the culmination of a decades-long effort by conservative activists around the country. And one man in particular has played an outsized role in that effort. Freedom. Please join me in welcoming Leonard Leo. Leonard Leo. He leads the Federalist Society. It's a conservative legal organization. And through this group, Leo has spent the majority of his adult life working towards one central goal, getting conservatives appointed to the most powerful courts in this country, including the Supreme Court. He, more than any other single person outside of government, is responsible for the transformation of the federal judiciary and the Supreme Court into the conservative-dominated institution that it is today. That's Washington Post columnist and author Ruth Marcus. She writes about the Federalist Society and Leonard Leo in her book, Supreme Ambition, Brett Kavanaugh and the Conservative Takeover. Now, to fully understand how we got to this moment and how Leonard Leo grew to have so much personal influence over who now sits on the nation's highest court, you first need to understand the list. Donald Trump unveiled a list of 11 jurists he would consider nominating to the Supreme Court if he we're were just getting this list. We're looking through well, the it Trump now. The list came something of a surprise today, but it is clear someone had been working on it for quite a while. By May 2016, Donald Trump had become the presumptive Republican presidential nominee, but he still needed to win over skeptical conservatives. And so he released a list of people he would nominate to the Supreme Court. How much of a role, a personal direct role, did Leonard Leo play in creating this list? He wrote it. This list began with 11 names, but continued to expand throughout Trump's campaign and his term in office. All of the people on this list had, at one time or another, questioned abortion rights. And just 10 days into his administration, Trump plucked the name Neil Gorsuch from this very list to fill Justice Antonin Scalia's seat. Today, I am keeping another promise to the American people by nominating Judge Neil Gorsuch of the United States Supreme Court to be of the United States Supreme Court. And Leo like snapped into action, selling Gorsuch's nomination, as he did on this Catholic television network, EWTN. Our Constitution is premised on the idea that uh, liberty, human life, those are inextricably intertwined with the structural protections of our Constitution, the separation of powers, federalism, limits on government power. This is what Neil Gorsuch's judicial career has been all about. And it didn't end with Gorsuch. Well, in just a few moments... We will proudly swear in the newest member of the United States Supreme Court, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett. 
All three of Trump's Supreme Court nominees, Gorsuch in 2017, Kavanaugh in 2018, and Barrett in the waning days of the 2020 presidential campaign, all of them had been on the list at one point or another. And all of them sided with Justice Samuel Alito in that leaked draft opinion overturning Roe v. Wade, according to Politico. Leo helped pave the road for each of their confirmations, as he did for Kavanaugh here on CBS. Should we be worried about Roe v. Wade going I think, away? I don't think people should be worried about Roe v. Wade or any other particular case. I think they should be worried about having judges who are really going to interpret the laws it's written. So and on NPR. Here's the bottom line. The conservative legal movement doesn't believe in an outcome-driven approach to judicial decision-making. It doesn't? No, it doesn't. I mean, there may be people who in their personal lives oppose or favor abortion, oppose or favor gun rights. But at the end of the day, uh, it's very dangerous to have a court that's outcome driven, which you really In both of these interviews, Leo highlighted a core philosophy that he has said should drive judicial decision making, and that is textualism. Here's Ruth Marcus again. The thing that's important to understand about Leonard Leo is his vision of judicial conservatism, of hewing closely to the text of the Constitution, a vision of not discerning in the grand phrases of the Constitution individual rights that aren't expressly stated. An individual right not expressly stated in the Constitution? The right to abortion. Marcus says when it comes to Leo's opposition to abortion rights, his legal reasons go hand in hand with personal reasons rooted in his faith. His Catholicism, in addition to his conservatism, is the other really animating strain. He is a man who has gone to daily mass since his oldest daughter, who was born with spina bifida, died in 2007. And he is a very, very serious Catholic. The likely overturning of Roe v. Wade is a result of a long game that has made Leonard Leo one of the most important gatekeepers to the federal bench for ambitious conservative lawyers. He has transformed himself, and especially during Republican administrations, into the power broker, the judge maker. People would go to people who knew him and say, can you get me in to see Leonard? Can you help me with Leonard? When Brett Kavanaugh's clerks were trying to make sure he got on Donald Trump's list to be on the Supreme Court. They made a pilgrimage to the Federalist Society to see Leonard Leo. Because they knew they, they kind of had to kiss the ring. Kiss the ring and he's the man you have to see. And to wield this kind of power in Washington, you need to be able to raise money, lots of money. Now, confirmation proceedings have aspects of political campaigns, and that means that they cost money. And raising money is something Marcus says Leo is very, very good at. He had a singular knack for coaching huge checks out of billionaire donors. A Washington Post analysis found Leo and his allies raised $250 million between 2014 and 2017. And a chunk of that money has gone directly to campaigns to drum up support for judicial confirmations, campaigns that include commercials like these. As a scholarly community, we have a wide range of political views. We are united, however, in our judgment about Amy. Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh has earned respect from both sides of the aisle. 
as well. Sheldon Whitehouse is a Democrat from Rhode Island, and as a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, he has the task of voting for or against Supreme Court nominees. He has opposed each of the Trump nominees Leo has promoted. And Whitehouse says Leo has used a complex network of donors to ensure that nominees he favors make it to the high court. In my view, it has created a captured court that makes decisions based on who they want to win and imports into what should be the high temple of the law, the mischief associated with you know, 19th century railroad commissions and other administrative bodies that get taken over by special interests. No, no. It's a partisan criticism of the fact that Republicans were able to confirm Supreme Court justices, and that probably does not sit well with Sheldon Whitehouse. Okay, this is Ron Bonjean. He was a communications strategist during Neil Gorsuch's confirmation process. And like many conservatives, he takes issue with White House's characterization that conservative interests have, quote, captured the Supreme Court. The Democrats have their own political levers and their own political organizations that they stand up and that they fund millions of dollars to try to define nominees just as well as we try to. And Leo himself told the Washington Post that there is nothing wrong with rich donors funneling their resources into causes they believe in. Let's remember that in this country, uh, the abolitionist movement, the women's suffrage movement, the American Revolution, the early labor movement, the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 1960s were all very much fueled by very wealthy people and oftentimes wealthy people who chose to be anonymous. I think that's not a bad thing. I think that's a good thing. In the coming days, the U.S. Supreme Court will issue a ruling in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. And if that ruling overturns a federal right to abortion, three of the justices expected to join in that opinion appeared on the list that Leonard Leo personally curated. This is a moment that Leonard Leo has been working towards hard and diligently and fervently, because he's a true believer, the right to abortion, I know he believes is not in the Constitution. The practice of abortion, I know he sincerely believes is the taking of a human life. And if this is what you've dedicated yourself to for the last 30 or 40 years, imagine what this moment feels like to you. It's a moment that feels like victory. We never got to ask Leonard Leo what this moment actually feels like for him. We asked several times for an interview. He never agreed to one. But no matter how Leo feels about this moment, it will have lasting consequences for the rest of the country. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, unpacking today's January 6th committee hearing. 
In business news, changes to the estate tax could be coming to Massachusetts. The state Senate president tells the Greater Boston Chamber of Commerce it's one of several areas under consideration as lawmakers look to pass a tax relief bill before the end of the session next month. She says another item could be changes to the earned income tax credit. On Wall Street today, stocks posted solid gains. Dow was up 641 points at 30,530. NASDAQ was up 270 points at 11,069. And the S&P 500 gained 89 points. It's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lexus Broadway in Boston, presenting Wicked, flying back to the Citizens Bank Opera House now through July 24th. Tickets are now available at LexusBroadwayInBoston.com. Remember, if WBUR is your lifeline, give monthly and get your support tripled by some members of our Murrow Society, but that match ends soon at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the new engineering design workshop at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. And Liz Linder Photography, creating portraits and stories for life and work. Pictures talk at lizlinder.com. In sports, Red Sox host the Detroit Tigers at Fenway tonight at 7.10 p.m. Forecast says partly cloudy tonight, lows dropping to the upper 50s. Partly cloudy tomorrow as well with a slight chance of a shower, highs in the low 70s. Right now, 71 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users. Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline how businesses can attract, interview, and hire candidates. More at indeed.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm, and I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Today's January 6th hearing was all about the states, the pressure campaign aimed at state officials by former President Trump and his allies to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Well, we have one of the January 6th committee members with us now live, Jamie Raskin, Democrat of Maryland. Congressman, good to speak with you again. Thanks for having me. You know, we have heard so much um, for a long time now about the violence at the Capitol itself on January 6th. I was struck today listening to the accounts from state officials about the threats of violence made against them, made against their families. What did you learn from their testimony? Well, there was violence built into this thoroughgoing assault on democracy. You know, the elections that take place across America in a presidential year um, are state-based and they require tens of thousands of people um, like, uh, you know, like Shea Moss, who we saw today, people who register voters, who get people their absentee ballots, who are there to check people in. This is Um, the election worker in Fulton County, Georgia, talking about death threats against her, her mom. Yeah, I mean, you know, they they were beside themselves. I mean, they are completely transformed and um, just shocked by what happened as Donald Trump unleashed the the wrath and the fury of his mob on them. So, um, you know, the same thing uh, with Speaker Bowers in Arizona, you know, a lifelong passionate Republican, um, evidently a great political leader, 
um, who supported Trump, wanted Trump to win by his own testimony, but said, I don't want to be a winner by cheating. And he said there was no way he was going to violate his oath and start concocting vote totals and the kinds of things that Trump was asking people to do. Just like uh, Raffensperger, another Republican who had contributed, contributed to the Trump campaign, was involved in trying to get votes for Trump, but he said he would not cheat and, you know, just find 11,780 votes. Right. You're describing a lot of testimony today that was very powerful, uh, that was very personal. What is its significance set against the rest of your investigation? Why, why does it matter in the in terms of the stakes of the inquiry your, your committee is doing? Well, when you step outside of the constitutional order and you step outside the rule of law, ultimately, violence is going to be your destination. And that's just what happened on January 6th. There was no way that Donald Trump could win through the counting of electors by the House and the Senate in joint session. It required violence to try to upset the whole apple cart and put that coercive pressure onto Mike Pence just to reject electors. So violence was the ultimate destination of this tyrannical plot. Is your panel any closer to deciding whether to make a criminal referral to the Justice Department? You know, I think that's a bit of semantic confusion because there there is a statute that allows us to make a criminal referral when it comes to contempt of Congress. Since we made a bunch of those, then everyone was saying, well, you're going to do criminal referrals on these other things like conspiracy to interfere with the federal proceeding and so on. There's no statute that calls for that. So in some sense, all of our hearings and our whole report is an attempt to get the information out to everybody, though. It's the country, it's the Congress, as well as the prosecutor. So it's a referral to the country of this emergency that we're still in. Well, in terms of the information you have seen so far, um, I'll, I'll say another of your committee colleagues, Adam Schiff, told me last week he thinks the Justice Department should open a criminal probe uh, into former President Trump, um, setting aside the, the issue of a referral or not. Do you agree? Is the evidence there? I think there's overwhelming evidence um, that crimes took place. And look, the Department of Justice has not been sitting on its hands. They've already brought more than 850 prosecutions against people for everything from assaulting a federal officer to seditious conspiracy, which means conspiracy to overthrow the government. So, I, you know, I've got every reason to believe that the crimes committed by the people at the top will be ultimately uh, investigated and prosecuted because of their severity and because of the culpability of the actors. Just a few seconds left. More subpoenas coming? Um, from our committee? Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, yeah, we're still in the middle of the investigative process and more evidence is turning up every single day as people come forward. So uh, we're, we're not... So yes, it done. sounds like we're, is the answer. We're not right. done yet. Uh, is Democrat Jamie Raskin of Maryland, member of the Congressional Committee investigating January 6th. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The Biden administration plans to restrict the use of anti-personnel landmines by the U.S. military. These are mines specifically designed to hurt or kill enemy troops. And the policy is a change from the Trump administration's more permissive approach. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. In conflict zones around the world, landmines kill and injure thousands of people a year, most of them civilians. And though the U.S. is not a part of an international treaty banning landmines, it is taking a step in that direction. Undersecretary of State Bonnie Jenkins announced a new policy today. The United States' new policy on anti-personal landmines is centered on people. 
the communities and the individuals around the world who seek peace and security. The U.S. is restricting landmine use everywhere but on the Korean Peninsula. Another top State Department official, Stanley Brown, says the U.S. needs to defend South Korea from a potential invasion from the north. Basically, we're not going to develop or produce or acquire antipersonal landmines. We're not going to export or transfer uh, antipersonal landmines. We're not going to use them outside the Korean Peninsula. Part of the policy is also to undertake to destroy all antipersonal stockpiles not required for the defense of the Republic of Korea. He says the U.S. policy is back to where it was during the Obama administration. Anti-landmine activists call this a step in the right direction. It is not sufficient. It does not finish the job. It does not get us over the finish line. Jeff Meir runs an aid group called Humanity and Inclusion, which is a founding member of the international campaign to ban landmines. Humanity and Inclusion believes firmly that there is no place in today's modern world for landmines, anti-personnel landmines in particular. And we believe that the United States should now and forever swear the use of anti-personnel landmines and should accede to the mine ban treaty that 164 other nations have already agreed to. Most U.S. allies are part of the 1997 treaty. China, Russia, India, Syria, and Iran are among those who haven't signed. The State Department's Stanley Brown says the new U.S. policy is in sharp contrast to what Russia is doing in Ukraine. Where there's compelling evidence that Russian forces are using explosive munitions, including landmines, which is causing extensive harm to civilians and damage to uh, vital civilian infrastructure there. Cleanup is costly and dangerous, and landmines pose a long-lasting threat, as Annie Scheel points out. She's with the Center for Civilians in Conflict. Landmines are indiscriminate weapons that cause devastating harm to civilians for decades after they are used. So this new policy is a really welcome and critical step towards bringing the United States in line with the global consensus against landmines. She'll be pushing the Biden administration to move quickly to destroy stockpiles of landmines and to continue to fund demining programs around the world. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. It's NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org. Coming up on All Things Considered, new surveillance video from Uvalde, Texas, shows police entering the site of a school shooting last month earlier than expected. In the forecast, it'll be increasing clouds tonight, lows dropping to the upper 50s, a mix of sun and clouds tomorrow with a slight chance of afternoon showers, highs in the low 70s. Thursday, partly sunny skies, chance of showers for most of the day, highs in the mid-70s. And Friday, a mix of sun and clouds, another chance of rain, highs in the upper 70s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass Cultural Council, committed to supporting a diverse, inclusive, and an anti-racist cultural sector in the Commonwealth. Through their racial equity plan and grant-making, Mass Cultural Council is working to better serve artists and organizations. Learn about their grants and services and the power of culture at massculturalcouncil.org. And Zoo New England. Experience Gorilla Grove, the incredible new immersive outdoor gorilla habitat at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo. Plan your visit at franklinparkzoo.org. 
WBOR is going out on a limb, and we hope you'll join us. I'm Rupa Shanoi. We're eliminating a five-day on-air fundraiser this month so you can hear WBOR uninterrupted. But we still need to make our goal. Take a minute right now and give monthly at WBUR.org. That way we'll meet the goal and you can still hear all the news and storytelling that brings us together. Give now and thank you. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden is celebrating after the authorization of COVID-19 vaccines for kids under age five over the weekend. Biden visited a vaccination clinic today in Washington, D.C. There, in fact, there was uh, some of the first shots were actually given today. About 17 million children are now eligible to get the shots from Moderna and Pfizer. President Biden calls this an important milestone that will support the country's recovery. Let's be clear. Elected officials shouldn't get in the way and make it more difficult for parents who want their children to be vaccinated, who want to protect them and those around them. This is no time for politics. It's about parents being able to do everything they can to keep their children safe. The White House expects the pace of shots for young children to be slower than for older ones because parents may rely on their child's doctor to administer them. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland made an unannounced visit to Ukraine and held talks there with the country's top prosecutor on pursuing war crimes against Russian forces. NPR's Greg Myrie reports from Kyiv. Attorney General Garland told his Ukrainian counterpart that the U.S. was, quote, sending an unmistakable message. There is no place to hide. The U.S. is already sending money to Ukraine to help the country gather, preserve, and analyze evidence of suspected war crimes, including the killing of many civilians. Ukraine's prosecutor general, Irina Venediktova, says the country has identified more than 15,000 potential Russian war crimes. Three Russian soldiers have already been tried and convicted. However, Ukraine faces a major challenge in capturing Russian soldiers and linking them to specific crimes. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Kyiv. Stocks finished broadly higher on Wall Street today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Parents and caregivers in the state are deciding which COVID vaccine is best for their child. Shots began going into arms today after the CDC gave the okay to the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines for kids ages 5 and under over the weekend. Dr. Benjamin Linus is an infectious disease specialist at Boston Medical Center. He tells WBUR's Radio Boston both vaccines are equally effective, but that there are some trade-offs. The Pfizer vaccine requires three doses. Moderna requires two. But Linus says the Moderna shot typically brings on more side effects. I don't think anyone will regret getting one vaccine versus the other once their child is vaccinated. I really think it's about those trade-offs in sort of ease of access and the experience of getting the vaccine. Linus calls vaccines for the youngest kids one of the most crucial moments of the pandemic. New research from Harvard finds the majority of adults in the U.S. have experienced extreme weather in the past five years. The Harvard NPR poll found those experiences are driving people's opinions on climate change and proposals for climate policy. WBUR's Hannah Shinatri has more. Wildfires, floods, extreme heat, and hurricanes. People who have experienced these events are more likely to see climate change as a crisis than those who haven't. And among those who've experienced extreme weather, nearly one in four say they face serious health problems as a result. 
Harvard survey co-director Robert Blunden says those affected largely want action to protect against climate change, and they want the government to pay for it. Requiring cars in the future to get better gas mileage, uh, requiring plants to reduce their carbon emissions was widely supported. Blunden says respondents are less supportive of policies that would have them pay more out of pocket. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Hannah Schnatry. The Massachusetts House has given initial approval to a $10 billion expanded infrastructure bill. The bill approved by the Ways and Means Committee today adds $400 million to address MBTA safety issues. It also includes $250 million to move the planned east-west rail expansion forward. The bill is expected to get debate in-house on Thursday. It's 534. WBUR supporters include summer term at Boston University with a wide range of courses in math and science, including pre-med offerings in biology, chemistry, neuroscience, and physics. BU also offers over 50 math courses, statistics, calculus, probability, linear algebra, differential equations, and more. Visit bu.edu summer. In the forecast, it'll be partly cloudy overnight tonight. Lows in the upper 50s. Partly cloudy tomorrow as well with a slight chance of a shower. Highs in the low 70s. Right now, 72 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses of all sizes attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed dot com slash NPR. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. And from the Levelson Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. During a hearing in Texas today, new developments trickled out about the police response during last month's school shooting in Uvalde. The state's top law enforcement official testified before lawmakers that officers inside Robb Elementary School had enough resources to stop the gunman within three minutes. But of course, that did not happen. Sergio Martinez-Beltran with the Texas Newsroom was at the hearing and joins us now from Austin. Welcome. Hi, Elsa. Hi. So I understand this was the first time that Stephen McCraw, the director of the Texas Department of Public Safety, this is the first time he's ever testified in public about the shooting, right? What else did we learn from today's hearing? So today's testimony was significant and maddening. According to the new timeline, from the time the police officers went into the school to the time a border patrol unit killed the shooter, one hour and 14 minutes went by. And as you all know, 19 kids and two teachers were killed during that time. Today, Director McCraw said that within the first three minutes of the shooter being inside Rob Elementary, there were nine officers with pistols, rifles, and body armor to confront the shooter. But instead, Pete Arredondo, who is the Uvalde School's chief of police and was the incident commander on scene, allegedly prevented officers from going in. McCraw says that Arredondo instead called for more gunpowder and rifles, despite officers in the hallway of the school having what they needed. There's compelling evidence that the law enforcement response to the attack at Robb Elementary was an abject failure and antithetical to everything we've learned over the last two decades since the Columbine massacre. 
Macron says that officers responding to mass shootings are expected to rush in and confront the shooter with whatever firearm they have. Yeah. You mentioned Chief Pete Arredondo. I mean, one thing we had heard was that he also waited to go into the classroom where the gunman was because he believed the door was locked. But I understand that new evidence showed that was not the case, right? Right. And I think this is the most significant part of today's testimony. Arredondo believed the shooter had barricaded himself in one of the classrooms and that he had locked the door. So he called for a master key and a tool to get it open. But today we learned that the way the classroom door is built, it's impossible to lock from inside, Mm -hmm. which means the door was never locked. Also, based on new evidence reviewed by the Department of Public Safety, no officer in the hallway even tried to open the door. What do we know about how Arredondo has been reflecting on what happened? I mean, has he made any public remarks since the shooting? Not really. He has only appeared in front of the press on the day of the shooting. Since then, details about his response have come out, and he has truly been in hiding for the most part. He recently talked to the Texas Tribune and claimed that he didn't consider himself the incident commander on scene. He said that he didn't bring in the police radios with him because he wanted his hands free to grab the gun and shoot, and he also told the outlet that he and the officers did all they could to save lives. But now Texas senators really want Arredondo to appear on this panel and talk publicly about this. Here's Republican Senator Paul Bettencourt of Houston. I had challenged this chief to come testify in public as to what happened here. Don't go hide in the House and, and, and talk privately. Come to the Senate where the public in the, of Texas can, can ask these questions. The family of the victims and many lawmakers are asking for transparency, and both chambers have pledged to make the facts of this tragedy public. That is Sergio Martinez Beltran with the Texas Newsroom. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Today, the Supreme Court struck down a state ban on public funding for religious schools in Maine. The court's 6-3 to three decision is the latest in a series of decisions siding with religious interests, as NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg reports. For much of the 20th century, the Supreme Court stood firmly behind the Founding Fathers' idea of a high wall of separation between church and state. But in recent years, the court has instead sought a greater accommodation between church and state, often viewing supposedly neutral laws as hostile to religion. That trend was never more evident than in today's decision involving the funding of public education in Maine. Maine is the most rural state in the country, so rural, in fact, that more than half of the school districts don't have a high school. The state deals with that problem by contracting with existing public high schools to take the kids from the districts with no high schools, and to pay the same tuition to non-sectarian private schools to take up the slack as well. But the state does not pay tuition for students attending religious schools. Two families challenge the funding system, contending that the state should also pay for their children's tuition at private religious schools, where the curriculum is, quote, biblically based with religion integrated through all content areas. Today, the Supreme Court agreed with them. Writing for the majority, Chief Justice John Roberts said that when the state pays tuition for students at non-sectarian private schools, but not religious private schools, that is discrimination against religion. 
The chief justice did offer some suggestions on how to comply with the decision, including setting up a state boarding school for children who live far from a high school, or offering remote learning to them, or building more high schools. Maine State Attorney General Aaron Fry blanched at those suggestions today. I don't know to what extent those suggestions were reasonable suggestions. You know, the idea that the state is going to, for example, open a boarding school. You know, that frankly may not be consistent with what is actually practicable for, you know, your average working class state. The court's three dissenters cited these very problems as the reason that, until today, the Supreme Court had allowed what it called some play in the joints between the Constitution's ban on state establishment of religion and its guarantee to the free exercise of religion. Writing for the dissenters, Justice Stephen Breyer noted that in previous decisions, the court said that states may set up tuition voucher programs paid by the state that allowed parents to send their children to parochial schools. The key word is may, he said. We have never previously held what the court holds today, namely that a state must use state funds to do that. University of Pennsylvania law professor Marcy Hamilton sees the current court as having a more theocratic than secular viewpoint. I think the Supreme Court is definitely on that trajectory. The inevitable logical conclusion to what they're saying is that it's unconstitutional under the free exercise clause to deny religious schools the same funding that public schools get. In addition to Chief Justice Roberts' suggestions, another possibility would be for some of the non-religious private schools in Maine to become public charter schools. Between 80 and 95 percent of the students in those schools are already from areas without a regular high school and have their tuition paid by the state. But that would require some changes in state law. It's not at all clear that Maine's religious schools want state funding and the strings that come attached to it. Were any of them to become charter schools, for instance, participation would likely require that they accept students of different faiths, that they not discriminate based on sexual orientation, and that they teach the state-approved curriculum. But Notre Dame law professor Richard Garnett says charter schools could be a gray area. I am genuinely curious to see how the the law of charter schools develops and whether we get to a point where a charter school is permitted to be as kind of religiously imbued as a parochial school is. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The trip from Chicago to Champaign, Illinois, is about two, two and a half hours on the interstate. And when Zach Hilsing and John Lehman started dating long distance in 2007, they quickly tired of that route. I was living in Chicago. Zach was living in downstate Illinois. And we got sick of driving uh, between the two locations on the highway and started taking side roads through small towns. Their back road routes took longer, maybe twice as long, but they started to notice the buildings in those rural areas. They made mental notes to come back together to see them. We started driving around on sort of these purpose-oriented uh, road trips. You know, we'd, we'd spend 10, 11 hours in the car all day long and, and travel from town to town. Over time, Lehman says, these day-long dates turned up a few patterns. For instance, here in Illinois, we have found uh, many iterations of the same kind of modern mid-century post office that has the same building shape, 
but the key difference is that the panels on the facade of the buildings are all different colors. They started taking photos at eye level of these small-town post offices, restaurants, and municipal buildings, and they started cataloging them online. They uploaded their photos, then tagged them with the construction materials, the function, the architectural elements, and even the words on buildings. They call it the Rural Indexing Project. For Zach Hilsing, these images are a corrective to other depictions of country life that didn't match his experience growing up in a small town in Alabama. Depictions like Mama's Family or the Andy Griffith Show. And so it's been nice to be able to convey an image of rural America that is more connected to the rest of America in a way through the trends that we see. In fact, the two of them see the same disinvestment, the same lack of infrastructure that they see in certain neighborhoods of Chicago. It seems, you know, maybe a little bit that even though there's this big rural urban divide that people think about in the United States, that that the problems are, are a little bit more universal than we may be led to believe. But while a lot of images from rural America connote decay or abandonment, the Rural Indexing Project focuses on buildings that reflect active life. John Lehman says they actually see a lot of what he called adaptive reuse. For instance, we had a photo recently that was a an old First National Bank building in a small town in South Dakota that had been repurposed as a meat locker and catering facility. And not all the trends they uncovered carry so much weight. There are a lot of barbershops and hair salons, so obviously there are a lot of hair puns. Sophisticots, oh snip, best little hair house, hair's looking at you, hairy decisions, hair it is. Curl up and die and <laughs> sheer madness. Those are great. It's so good. Hilsing and Lehman have lived together for a while now, but they have not stopped these road trips. They have now visited nearly 1,500 municipalities in 28 states. That's so far, and they plan to keep going. You can see some of their photographs on our website, npr.org. Education leaders in Uvalde, Texas, will soon face the difficult task of leading their school communities forward while dealing with their own trauma. An organization co-founded by Columbine High School's former principal will be there to offer help. Tomorrow, a conversation with the Principal Recovery Network. Ask your smart speaker to play Morning Edition or ask for your local station by name. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org and on the WBUR Listen app. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up on All Things Considered, two writers and gardeners explain how poetry and gardens are a perfect pair. Then next hour, looking at monkeys to see how human speech might have evolved. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MassTLC, the region's leading technology industry group, helping business leaders get connected, gain visibility, and drive business impact. More at MassTLC.org. Remember, some members of our Murrow Society gave their support to triple match your monthly gift. But that match ends soon, so please give now at WBUR.org. In the forecast, it'll be increasing clouds overnight. 
overnight tonight, lows dropping to the upper 50s. A mix of sun and clouds tomorrow with a slight chance of afternoon showers. Highs in the low 70s and Thursday partly sunny. Highs in the mid-70s with another chance of showers. Right now, 72 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed money at findmassmoney.com. So I started talking to brokers and buyers and sellers, and I came across the story of one couple that was confronting the questions so many people are these days. Why is it so hard to buy a house in America right now? I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. Okay, let's slow down for a moment. I'm Ross Gay. I'm Tess Taylor. Ross is a poet, and he studies joy. <laughs> Tess is a poet, and she, and she studies many things, but um, poets is among them. Tess has gardening on the mind as she edits an anthology of garden poems. It seemed like a terrific excuse to talk with Ross about how poetry and gardens are a perfect pair. How is your garden doing? It's doing real good. You know, um, it's kind of an amazing part of the summer because, you know, in Indiana is where I live and uh, stuff right around now, it starts to like really start taking off. Pretty soon we'll be harvesting garlic in like, you know, two, three weeks. So, but then there's all these other kind of fruiting bushes out here. We have these things called service berries or also called June berries. And it's this incredibly delicious fruit that is everywhere. It's kind of planted all over the place. So it's like the time to nibble that. There's a fruit called Gumi that I love that is um, coming on right now. And I'm actually away from my house at this moment. And I'm a little bit excited to get back. (laughs) Yeah, I was just away in New York for a week. And I came back and our plum tree that was a little bit heavy was actually totally heavy and dropping. And I realized that one of the things that's so cool about gardens is they just make you want to call people over to be like, hey, we got too many plums. Could you come, please? That's it. That's so it. That's it. That's the, um, to me, like one of the, the lessons of the garden is it's like the lesson of abundance. Yes. If you have a, if you have a garden, it's kind of like working. There's always going to be a moment where you have too much. And so it kind of reminds you of like, oh, yeah, what do we do? You have too much, and in fact, it becomes a gift for people to take your stuff. Yes. And there's that joke in the Midwest that people leave zucchini on other That's people's it. porches in the middle <laughs> of the night. They're just like, you have to take my zucchini now. That's it. That's and it. And it's funny. Yeah, it's true, because we live in this world, I think, where we think about scarcity a lot, and there's a lot of fear. And yet, that we do also, if you know, especially those of us that are gardeners, have these moments of kind of like this overwhelming too muchness that actually kind of bring us into community, you know? Oh, yeah, totally. So I just finished, as you know, editing this anthology of new gardening poems that's going to come out next year, and I'm really excited about it. But so I had this chance to think a little bit about how gardening and poems go together, and I just wondered if you had some thoughts about that. Like, why, why are gardens and poems such good friends? Hmm. Yeah, I have probably like a, this is like hours of thinking. (laughs) But one of the things that I absolutely feel makes poems and gardens kind of tied up with one another is that, is that the seed of whatever, an arugula plant or a collard plant or something is so tiny, you wouldn't notice it if it was on your counter. You would brush it off. You wouldn't even notice it. But inside of that seed, in a very real way, is not only like enough arugula for, you know, you could have an arugula plant. That would then turn into whatever. Maybe it would make 500 seeds. 
each of those 500 seeds could make plants that could then all make 500 more seeds. So it's so quick that there's a kind of um, inside of this tiny, this tiny thing is all of this other stuff. It's one of the places where metaphors happen. This turns into that. This is that all the time. It's always the case that gardens are sort of doing metaphor for us as beautifully as possible. That's, that's one way. How about you? What do you, what do you think? Um, well, I also think that gardens are a place where we can, they, they're not exactly nature. Mm. They're sort of something we've cultivated, but there's something that we've cultivated so that we can see nature, so that we can touch it, so that we can be close to it. And I feel like guard, like poems, I feel like poems are this place where we sculpt language so that we can feel our lives. And we shape it and we prune it. It's a place where we tighten and make, make language dense so that we can see and feel our lives more clearly. That's right. And one of the things that I do is I'll smell something and it'll remind me of someone who's no longer here or something that's changed. And that is a sensual experience that happens in a garden that connects us through time and space. And it also reminds us that we have bodies which are only here for a certain amount of time. So gardens are places too, where we get to sort of, in addition to, for instance, grieving um, any number of things, we get to be aware too, that these bodies are only here for however long they're here. It's funny too, because poems remind us that we live in breath, totally. which also reminds us that we live in bodies. Poems are about breath. Poems are about sharing breath, sharing little um, beautiful musical measures of breath. That's exactly right. Like poems are made of breaths. So poems are bodily in themselves. And when we read them to other people, they become part of other people's bodies. Or when we read other people's lines, the way they've constructed a poem, we're breathing them. And that makes me wonder, do you have a poem that you want to read us for the summer? A garden poem? I have a poem for you. So I'm gonna read a selection of my poem, it's called Burial. I took the jar which has become my father's house and lonely for him and hoping to coax him back for my mother as much as me. I poured some of them into the planting holes and he dove in glad for the robust air, saddling a slight gust into my nose and mouth, chuckling as I coughed, but mostly he disappeared into the minor yawns in the earth into which I placed the trees splaying wide their roots, casting the gray dust of my old man evenly throughout the hole, replacing then the clods of dense Indiana soil until the roots and my father were buried, watering it all in with one hand while holding the tree with the other straight as the flag to the nation of simple joy of which my father is now a naturalized citizen. Oh, thank you. That's so great. I love how you write about sorrow and joy together. And it made me think of this poem that's in my collection I'm working on now, which has a lot of food in it. I've noticed that food steadied me during these hard years, just being near it, cooking it. So this one is called Poem for Heartbreak. On a morning of sorrow, I soak the beans, wash the kale's particulate dirt. Smooth down purple veins in the collard. Here in the basin is glittering earth, dirt 
the slow grandchild of river and mountain. There are horrors to take in today, but first I chop onions and garlic. I am making a meal for the journey. We will hold ourselves up this coming day, this potato still a gift of the earth. I fondle its silence, its underground musk, its cold steadies my hands. Again and again, I hear my knife heave. It opens and opens against the wood board. Beautiful. Beautiful. Poets and gardeners Ross Gay and Tess Taylor. His next book is a collection of essays called Inciting Joy. Her most recent book is Rift Zone. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. And from Easy Cater, committed to solving food for today's workplaces, from sales meetings to employee lunches, online ordering from more than 80,000 restaurants, corporate food solutions at EasyCater.com. This is WBUR. Coming up next hour on All Things Considered, the new survey showing most adults in the U.S. have been affected by extreme weather over the last five years. That's coming up. Forecast says partly cloudy tonight, lows in the upper 50s. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include DuckDuckGo, committed to making privacy online simple. Used by tens of millions, they offer Internet privacy with one download. DuckDuckGo, privacy simplified at DuckDuckGo.com. I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The House January 6th committee hears from state elections officials who say they were pressured by the Trump White House to overturn voting results. It is Tuesday, June 21st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up, what the committee heard today with another round of testimony coming on Thursday. I said, look, you are asking me to do something that is counter to my oath when I swore to the Constitution to uphold it. Also this hour, two brothers from outside the Ukrainian city of Kharkiv worked to help collect the bodies of Russian soldiers left behind when troops retreated from the area. And at 6.30 on Marketplace, looking at the aftermath of the Great Resignation. It's 6.01. First, this hour's news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The latest January 6 committee hearings are focusing on then-President Trump's attempts to pressure state lawmakers into overturning the 2020 election results. 
As NPR's Scott Detrow reports, Republican officials from Arizona and Georgia say Trump, Rudy Giuliani, and others repeatedly urged them to ignore the will of their state's voters. Arizona House Speaker Rusty Bowers told the committee he wanted Trump to win the 2020 election, but that it was Joe Biden who rightfully won Arizona's electoral votes. He recounted being pressured to invalidate Biden's Arizona Electoral College slate. And I said, look, you are asking me to do something that is counter to my oath when I swore to the Constitution to uphold it. And I also swore to the Constitution and the laws of the state of Arizona. And this is totally foreign as an idea or a theory to me. Biden was the first Democrat to win Arizona in decades. Scott Detrow, NPR News, Washington. The Biden administration says it will restrict the use of anti-personnel landmines by the U.S. military, but the U.S. stopped short of joining an international treaty banning the weapons. More from NPR's Michelle Kellerman. The new policy restricts the use of landmines outside of the Korean Peninsula, where the U.S. says it is defending South Korea from the north. A top State Department official, Stanley Brown, says the U.S. is getting back in line with the Obama administration's approach, and he says this is far different from what Russia is doing in Ukraine. There's compelling evidence uh, that Russian forces are using explosive munitions, including landmines, uh, which is causing extensive harm to civilians and damage to uh, vital civilian infrastructure. Like the U.S., Russia is not a part of the international treaty banning landmines. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. President Biden today fired back at oil company executives, including the head of Chevron, who have said they are doing all they can to ramp up production. Chevron CEO Michael Wirth saying that despite those efforts, Biden is criticized and at times sought to, quote, vilify the industry. However, the president said that's not the case, and he noted how many oil fields are out there. This idea that they don't have oil to drill and to bring up is simply not true. This piece of the Republicans talking about Biden shut down feels wrong. 9,000 of them. Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm, meanwhile, is due to meet later this week with the heads of seven oil and gas companies. The board of social media company Twitter is recommending shareholders approve the proposed $44 billion sale of the company to billionaire investor Elon Musk. Musk reiterated his desire to move ahead on the deal last week during a virtual meeting with Twitter employees. However, Twitter's share price remains far below the offering price, signaling continued doubts about a deal actually getting done. Stocks gained ground on Wall Street today. The Dow was up more than 600 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Boston has named the finalists who could become the next superintendent of public schools. Mary Skipper has been superintendent of Somerville Public Schools for the past seven years. Before that, she worked for nearly two decades in various roles for Boston Public Schools. The other finalist is Tommy Welch, who currently serves as an assistant school superintendent in Boston. Final public interviews are set for later this week. The chosen candidate will replace Brenda Caselius, who's stepping down after three years on the job. Boston officials are awaiting results from a testing company on whether a pool in Charlestown can stay open this summer after all. The city's request for a new assessment of Clarity Pool comes after public outcry over its closure. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says two decades' worth of repairs had been deferred there. She says the analysis could determine if major repairs can wait a little longer. Could there be some very, very short-term fixes that would kind of hold us over one more season? But the truth is that this pool needs major renovation. It needs to be in the capital plan. And most of all, we want to keep our residents safe. 
Wu says the pool's fi- filtration system is broken and poses a hazard. Charlestown residents started a petition two days ago demanding repairs begin after the summer season. The state Supreme Court will decide whether House Speaker Sal DeMacy should have been allowed to register as a lobbyist in Massachusetts, even though the case is now moot. DeMacy was convicted in 2011 on federal corruption and extortion charges and was banned from becoming a lobbyist for 10 years. But a lower court overturned the ruling, finding the law prohibiting felons from lobbying in Massachusetts applied only to convictions on state, not federal crimes. Regardless, the 10-year prohibition period expired just over a year ago. The Supreme Judicial Court, though, says even though the case is moot, the issue needs to be decided because it is likely to happen again. Massachusetts home prices are at a new record high. The median price of a single-family home in the state is almost $618,000, up more than 12% from the same time last year. Don Ruffini, president of the Massachusetts Realtors Association, believes prices will continue to rise because of a shortage of homes for sale. The rate of the increase will slow over time, but I don't see it scaling back. We don't have enough supply for the demand that we have. Our population in Massachusetts has grown 17% over the last few years. We have a lot of new household formations. Millennials are buying. Ruffini says the hike in prices and mortgage rates are pushing buyers looking for entry-level housing out of the market. In the forecast, it will be increasing clouds tonight, lows dropping to the upper 50s. A mix of sun and clouds tomorrow with a slight chance of afternoon showers. Highs in the low 70s. Right now, 73 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the William T. Grant Foundation, working to harness the power of research to make a difference in the lives of children, teens, and young adults for more than 80 years. Learn more at WTGrantFDN.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. Here's one account of what Rudy Giuliani said as he worked to overturn the results of the 2020 election. We've got lots of theories, we just don't have the evidence. Those were the words of former Trump lawyer Giuliani, according to Arizona House Speaker Rusty Bowers, a Republican. Bowers was one of several officials from key swing states testifying today before the House January 6th committee. They recounted pressure from Trump to overturn President Biden's victory, and they recounted the many ways their lives were upended as they tried to protect democracy. NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales joins me from Capitol Hill. Hey, Claudia. Hi, Mary Louise. All right, let's start with Rusty Bauer. She testified for about an hour. He gave all kinds of detail about how Trump and Giuliani personally pressured him. What else did we learn? Right. This was pretty powerful testimony from Bowers about the extent of the pressure and the threats he and his family faced from Trump and his allies. He said protesters were showing up to where he lived, threatening him and his family, blasting music in their neighborhood. And at one point, a man recently approached his neighbor. And he had a pistol and was threatening my neighbor, not with the pistol, but just vocally. When I saw the gun, I knew I had to get close. And this was troubling for his family, his wife, who he called valiant, and a daughter who was gravely ill. Bowers had said Trump asked him to hold a hearing to investigate allegations of fraud in Arizona. But he said the evidence didn't merit a hearing. He said he told Trump and Giuliani that he would not break his oath. 
And there were many others who pressured Bowers, including lawyer John Eastman and Arizona GOP Congressman Andy Biggs. You know, I'm listening to this account of all the pressure coming from so many directions. It seems like that was a, a central theme today. Am I right here? That the, the, right. How democracy is upheld by big institutions, but also by individuals like, like, like Bowers. Exactly. For example, Chairman Benny Thompson warned these kind of threats continue today. He was saying two weeks ago, a county commissioner in New Mexico refused to certify results in a primary election race using unsupported claims. And then returning to Bowers, Bowers called arguments by Trump and Giuliani and other allies trying to get Arizona to use fake electors as, quote, a tragic parody. Bowers said that they choose to follow the will of the people. That's what he chose to do. He also said Giuliani pressured him to call the Arizona legislature back into session, a unilateral move Bowers said he can't do, and to recall electors that were going to be for President Biden. So Bowers was emotional when he said, quote, it is a tenant of my faith that the Constitution is divinely inspired, and he would not do it. Um, we also heard today from high-profile Trump allies who were part of this pressure campaign and this whole fake electors scheme. Who were they? Right. We heard about two members of Congress who were witnesses or who witnesses said and evidence showed had ties to this pressure campaign. For example, Bauer said he call, got a call the morning of January 6th from Arizona GOP Congressman Andy Biggs, who was pressuring him to sign on to a letter to decertify these electors for Biden. Biggs is also facing a January 6th subpoena in refusing to cooperate. And then we also saw text messages from an aide to Wisconsin GOP Senator Ron Johnson, who told one of Pence's aides that Johnson could give then-Vice President Mike Pence a slate of fake electors for his state and Michigan on January 6th. But we should note a Johnson aide said today the senator was not personally involved in this effort. Um, We also heard from several Georgia witnesses about the threats they faced. What did they say? Right. This was really striking testimony here from Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and his deputy Gabe Sterling. They were expanding on the pressure and threats they faced from their state, from Trump and his allies. Another witness from the state, this is Shea Moss. Uh, This is a Fulton County election worker at the time, recounted how she and her mother had to go into high hiding because of the threats they face from the former president and his allies. For example, on a call, Trump attacked Shea Moss and her mother 18 times. And Giuliani also spread outrageous false rumors connecting her to drug use. A lot of threats, um, wishing death upon me, telling me that, you know, I'm, I'll be in jail with my mother and saying things like, Be glad it's 2020 and not 1920. And so this leads into testimony. We'll hear from other witnesses in the Mm -hmm. coming days about this wide-ranging investigation into Trump's pressure campaign in January 6th. And PR's Claudia Grisales there on Capitol Hill. Thanks, Claudia. Thank you much. Ukraine's military pushed Russian forces back weeks ago from Ukraine's second-largest city, Kharkiv. Since then, Ukraine has been collecting the bodies of Russians left behind. NPR's Ryan Lucas explains why two brothers from a village outside Kharkiv are among those unburying Russia's dead. 
Yurosorokochahin leads us down a small path through fields planted with neat rows of potatoes and green onions. He stops in front of his vegetable garden, a fallow patch of dark soil bordered by a cherry tree and a blown-out house. He says there was a crater here, a big one. There's only a dip in the ground now, but it was here that he found the first ones. The dogs were circling around and there was a burnt-out stump sticking out of the ground. I thought maybe it was a cherry tree, but the cherry tree wasn't there. I know my garden. And I'm wondering what it could be, and then I pull on it, and there was a hand. It was the body of a Russian soldier killed in the fighting that destroyed much of this village of Malorohan. Yura says there were five Russians in all buried in the crater, one on top of the other. This was back in April. He and his brother, Volva, dug them up and called the Ukrainian military, who sent people out to collect the bodies. We helped them out, and that's how we started working together. By this, he means his and his brother's work as volunteer gravediggers. They exhumed the bodies of Russians who died in the failed attack on the nearby city of Kharkiv. And so far, they say, they've exhumed around 20 Russians in all. Yura is not a large man. His hair is but short, his skin burnt by the sun, his voice raspy from the cigarettes he smokes on repeat. In peacetime, he looked after the local soccer field, did random jobs, and sometimes helped bury locals at the village cemetery. And so after the Russian army swept into Malorohan in the first days of the war, he says he started helping bury some of the conflict's early victims. After the war started, I was making arrangements with the Russians so I could bury civilians that had been killed. The Russians had set up firing positions by the village graveyard, he says. So many of the civilians who died had to be buried in gardens. Since the Russian withdrawal, he's been exhuming the villagers, many of them people he knew, and reburying them in the cemetery. And for him, there's a difference between burying his fellow villagers and the Russians, who were at least indirectly responsible for their deaths. I feel different. I have tears in my eyes when I know the person, know them personally. But when it's just a body, it's just a body. Honestly, I don't care. Even so, he says he knows that somewhere, someone is suffering over the loss of each and every dead Russian he finds as well. The sad thing is even the Russian guys have parents, someone waiting for them, young guys. And it's sad to realize that. This work, of course, is not glamorous. The smell of death can follow the brothers home. When Yura first started, the village didn't have any water or power, so he couldn't even wash his clothes at the end of the day. My wife doesn't understand how I keep doing this job. Every time I come home, she asks, how can you do it? And she tells me to go wash, go clean yourself. Neither brother much likes this job, but it is a necessary one. And because of the heavy fighting that raged around Kharkiv, there's plenty of work to be done. Including a few days later when we meet Yura and his brother in Pyatahatki, a suburb on the northern edge of Kharkiv. Because here, in a little ditch just off a road littered with the charred hulks of burnt-out vehicles, a Russian soldier lies buried in a shallow grave. So you can see a little bit of clothes poking out there. It's like they just buried him and they put a little bit of dirt over the body. But yeah, you can definitely see some bits of uniform sticking out. A Ukrainian soldier slowly runs a metal detector over the ground to make sure there aren't any mines or explosives. He declares it's safe to work and Yura and Volva start digging.
Eventually, they pull the corpse out, place it into a white body bag, and zip it shut. Yoro and Vova take turns pouring water onto each other's hands to clean up, then they light cigarettes and wait for a military team to come collect the body. It will be taken to a morgue where forensic experts will search it for papers, tattoos, emblems, anything that could help identify the individual or his unit. Then the body will be placed in cold storage and eventually exchanged with Russia for Ukraine's own war dead. And it's that exchange that makes this all worthwhile for the brothers. They are helping bring Ukrainians home for a proper burial. Yura and Volva are both in their late 50s. They can't run around with a gun anymore, Volva says. So this is their way to contribute. Someone is good at something, we are good at this, so we have to do this. Eventually, a battered white van pulls up. The brothers heave the body bag into the back and shut the door. They are now done for the day, but they know that more work still lies in the fields and forests around them. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Kharkiv, Ukraine. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up on All Things Considered, the new survey that finds most adults in the U.S. have been affected by extreme weather in the past five years. In business news, Massachusetts gas prices are down five cents this week, though they remain near record highs. AAA Northeast reports... The average for a gallon of regular is now $4.99. That is three cents higher than the national average, 26 cents higher than a month ago, and more than $2 more than this time last year. On Wall Street, stocks posted solid gains with the Dow up 641 points at 30,530. NASDAQ was up 270 points, and the S&P 500 gained 89 points. Marketplace will have all the day's business news at 6.30. Right now, it's 6.19. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes, cambridgeculinary.com, and Cityside Subaru in Belmont with the all-new 2022 Subaru Outback Wilderness Edition. It's summer of love at citysidesubaru.com. Remember, what's better than WBUR uninterrupted and still meeting our fundraising goal? Getting your monthly gift tripled for a year only when you give now at WBUR.org. In the forecast, it'll be partly cloudy skies overnight tonight, lows dropping down to the upper 50s. Partly cloudy tomorrow as well with a slight chance for a shower, highs in the low 70s. Right now, 71 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, architects and interior designers dedicated to helping their clients in workplace, science, healthcare, and real estate. More at mparchitectsboston.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Climate change is making extreme weather more common in the U.S. That means serious financial problems for millions of people, according to a new survey. Rebecca Hersher from NPR's climate team explains. 
The survey was conducted by NPR, Harvard University, and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And it asked people all over the U.S. about their experiences with heat waves and hurricanes, floods, wildfires, and other extreme weather. And one of those people was Jennifer Harris. She's a nurse who lives in Hampton, Virginia, and answers phone calls from unknown reporters. I'm a very trusting person, Rebecca. When I called her up, Harris told me that extreme weather has cost her family a lot of money. Their town is on the coast, which means there are hurricanes and also thunderstorms, nor'easters, and floods. We've had um, roof damage. We've had siding damage. We have a shed out back where we've had siding damage done that. We've at our fence, we've replaced it twice. Now, one thing the survey found across the country is that when a storm causes damage like that, most people end up paying for a big chunk of the repairs themselves. The survey found that most people do not get help from the federal government, and insurance doesn't cover most of the repair costs. And that can happen even if you think you have good home or rental insurance, like when a storm damaged the Harris's house. So basically, we assumed our home insurance would cover everything. But we had a, what was it, babe, a a deductible? Basically, their insurance policy required them to pay 10% of their home's value out of pocket before the insurance company would start paying. And they ended up having to ask their relatives for help to pay for the repairs. We budget. And um, I don't want to make it seem like we're poor, but honestly, we do live paycheck to paycheck. And it's hard to save up when something like that happens. Harris said it took at least five years for the family to recover financially. The new survey suggests things like this are happening to millions of people. Caroline Ratcliffe is an economist at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. People can get hit from multiple directions. In 2020, before she worked at the Bureau, Ratcliffe co-authored a study that found natural disasters can cause lower credit scores, more debt, and more mortgage delinquency. And that people who live in less wealthy neighborhoods get hit harder. Disasters can have the effect of widening existing inequalities. And it's going to make create a bigger spread basically between the haves and the haves-nots. The new survey backs that up. Households that make less than $50,000 a year suffered weather-related financial problems at more than four times the rate of those who make more money, all of which suggests that, ideally, people would be more prepared for extreme weather to help prevent expensive damage. Jennifer Harris says she would love to feel more prepared for hurricane season, which just started this month. It is expensive. Being hurricane ready, that's the only thing. The list of expenses goes on and on. Special flood insurance, sandbags to keep the water out of the house. They have to be ready to evacuate if there's a storm, which means getting a hotel room or buying gas to drive hours to stay with relatives. They have a generator in case the power goes out and an emergency kit. But Harris says it's so full of useful stuff that it's always getting cannibalized for everyday needs. There's water bottles there. There's batteries. As soon as Christmas hits, I always forget to buy batteries. We dip into that kit and grab the batteries. Forecasters say this summer there will be more severe hurricanes than usual, as well as longer heat waves, worse wildfires, and heavier rain, in part because of global warming. And that means families like the Harrises are crossing their fingers, hoping to be spared. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Some monkeys have astounding vocal abilities. Others, not so much. And now a team of scientists thinks it knows why. NPR's John Hamilton reports that their explanation offers some clues about the origins of human speech. This is a tale of two kinds of monkeys. The first is the macaque. It's larger and lives in Asia and North Africa. Christina Sirkovich of the University of Pittsburgh says when it comes to vocalizing, macaques are kind of limited. They don't seem to have a lot of control over their vocalizations. They don't change the pitch. They don't change the internal timing. A lot of times their calls don't have syllables. The second monkey is the marmoset. It's smaller and lives primarily in South America. Sirkovich says the vocal skills of marmosets are remarkable. These guys have wonderful control over their vocalizations. They'll change the pitch, get louder because somebody's far away. They'll change the timing so that if you keep artificially cutting them off, they'll wait for the noise to go away so they can get their message heard. Both species have the same basic vocal tract. So the team figured the difference must be in how their brains control the vocal muscles. Sirkovich says the team decided to focus on one particular muscle in the larynx. It's this tiny little muscle, especially in the marmosets because they're very small. This muscle, when it contracts, it increases tension on the vocal cords so that the pitch goes up. The team designed an experiment to identify the brain areas that control this tiny muscle. Peter Strick, a neurobiologist, says the experiment used a substance that follows the nerve pathways from muscle tissue to the brain. And so we said, look, if we inject the same muscle, we might be able to see what's changed in the marmoset that allows it to vocalize. The experiment worked, and the results are published in the journal PNAS. The team found differences in two areas of the brain. One area seems to help shape a particular sound. The other appears to control the timing and sequence of sounds. Strick says in both of these areas, the South American marmosets had many more brain cells sending signals to the tiny muscle in the larynx. We believe that these two areas are really key in enabling marmoset complex vocalization. These areas are separate from what's known as the primary motor cortex, which is involved in planning and executing all kinds of muscle movement. But Strick says the areas work together with the primary motor cortex to help a monkey vocalize. In a sense, it has multiple separate computers running at the same time to deal with that complex task. Strick says that's also true in people who devote a lot of brain power to speech. Speech is remarkably complex. You have to control breathing appropriately. You have to control your lips and your tongue and, and produce sound. And you have to have very fine control of muscles in the larynx. Dr. Eddie Chang of the University of California, San Francisco, has spent years mapping the brain areas involved in human speech. What's been a missing piece of the puzzle in all of this is whether or not the part of the brain that controls the larynx is similar in other species, including some of our closest relatives, monkeys. Chang says now it looks like that puzzle piece has been found. And he says the discovery of brain areas that give marmosets a vocal advantage over macaques could explain how humans took the next evolutionary step. This new paper suggests that it's the elaboration of these parts of the brain that might have evolved for humans to speak and have language. A skill that appeared at least 50,000 years ago. John Hamilton, NPR News.
This is NPR News. This is WBUR. Coming up next at 6.30 on Marketplace, one year after it began, how the great resignation has played out for workers who quit or switched jobs. Remember, your monthly gift gets tripled for a year and you keep WBUR uninterrupted when you give right now at WBUR.org. In the forecast, increasing clouds tonight, lows dropping to the upper 50s. A mix of sun and clouds tomorrow. Could see a shower. Highs in the low 70s. Right now, 71 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston New Works Festival, featuring new original plays June 23rd to 26th, Calderwood Pavilion and Boston Center for the Arts, bostontheaterscene.org. Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design, laurenholleran.com. And Boston Harbor Now, celebrating the Boston Harbor Islands state and national park anniversaries. Visit bostonharborislands.org for programming and ferry information.